Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 68 of Yogaland. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and thanks for being here, Jason. You're welcome. Yes, after wearing me down, people, I have gotten iTunes reviews asking for Jason to come back. I've gotten Instagram messages. My agent. His agent's been bothering me. His dog called me yeah. the other day, so... I'll have a dog before I have an agent. <laughs> That's true. I'll have a cat before I have an agent. <laughs> That's true, too. I'll have a mouse before I have an agent. <laughs> well, you already have a mouse. We already have a You're mouse. You're so lucky. Yeah. We've named him. Oscar. Yes. He's really cute. Sort of. So today we are going to talk about, you've been thinking really deeply and, and writing about this topic that I love, which is, and I also think relates not just to yoga teachers, even though it's directed toward yoga teachers, sure. which is... Kind of your commencement speech for yoga teachers. Yeah. If someone is graduating from your training, the speech that you want to send them off with as they go out and teach in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And would you say it's kind of like a value statement? Yeah, I think it is a value statement. You know, I think that's exactly what it is. And I mean, I sort of step back and, and I ask myself, right, because I dedicate a lot of time to these trainings, you know, and... It is for me as a teacher teaching teachers, it's not the last step, but when you graduate with a 500-hour certificate, officially, that's the highest certification that we have in this discipline, this industry, right? So, I mean, these are a community of students that, that I have high aspirations for. I don't have high aspirations for their commercial popularity. I mean, I do to some degree, but I have high aspirations for their ability to be super high level, skilled, integrity, teachers carrying on this, this tradition. And like at first glance, I think like, well, what do I want people to walk away from this program with, right? And at first glance, it's like, oh, it's, it's obvious. I want them to know their body better. I want them to understand how bodies work. I want them to be more clear and cogent in their verbal cueing. I want them to be more precise in their manual adjustments. I want their sequencing to be ordered and logical and progressive and consistent and educational, not just a choreographed piece. It, there's all of these things that I want, but that still doesn't satisfy me. Like that to me, that's just good craft for our business. Like, that's just being good at what you do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's just being technique. actually, yeah, that's just craft. That's just technique. That's the ability to execute a good class. And to be honest, I take for granted that if you graduate from this program, you should be able to teach a good class, which isn't to say every class is going to be great. I mean, I still have classes that I feel like are just, I wish I could have that one over. Hmm. You know, we all go through that. So it's more the values. It's more, what is the belief system? What are the core values? What are the characteristics? What are the, what are the attributes that I want to help people pass on and, mm -hmm. and, really, and really teach from? One of the things I really like about this, and, and I've just started to glance over your early drafts, is that you're, you offer them a little bit of wisdom from your now almost two decades of being in this field. Yeah, And there are a few points that I just wanted to have you expand on a little bit. And the first one is developing a strong point of view without minimizing others' point of view. Yeah. This is a really nuanced and mature thing to do. And it can be yeah. really hard to do. Super hard to do. And I want to I'm just, not able to always do it. Right, right, right. 
this is why I said that this podcast I don't think is just for yoga teachers, because no. I think it's something that if more people did this in their everyday lives, we would have a much healthier society. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it starts a couple different ways. Actually, to be honest, it's, you know, when I started to think about this, the language point of view, I started thinking about it when we watch Project Runway. <laughs> they, do, they do talk about that a lot. They do talk about yeah. point of view, right? Because yeah. in style or fashion or music or whatever it is, like you, you have to have a point of view. You have to have sort of a an experience or an aesthetic or a set of beliefs that you are communicating. And I think that the reason that they talk about it there, which is also why it applies here, is that, is that it's a creative process. Yeah. And so we all accept in life that in a creative process, it's important to have your own point of view. But you and I have been talking about even when you're interpreting data, even yes. when you're teaching a discipline, yeah. you're still communicating your point of view. Totally. And, and you know, let, let me make a couple points on this. Because this is, like you said, like this is a, we have to get to some granular details on this to, to really express what I think that this actually means. Sure. Right? And the first thing that we have to step back and we have to acknowledge as a community is the world of yoga and sort of the vast scope of the teachings of yoga are so unfathomably huge that as teachers, we're only going to be teaching slivers, right? It's like, if we go back and we look at the text, we look at the teachings, if we look at, I just take my class an example, do we do all the meditations? Do we do all the asanas? Do we all the, do the, all the pranayamas? Do we get into the various teachings of Purusha and Prakriti and Samkhya and all these things? It's like, mm -mm. no. What I have to acknowledge is I have an implicit point of view by the fact that I am selecting content for class. I am drawing content from class to teach that I think is the most valuable and compelling content to me and to other practitioners, right? So there's countless mudras I don't teach, not because I don't value them, but because they don't, they don't make the cut. Mm -hmm. They don't make a 90 minute cut, mm -hmm. you know, or countless pranayama techniques or countless asana techniques that just, they don't make the cut, right? Right. And so we have to know and we have to acknowledge as a teachers, we are going through an editorial process by selecting the content that we're going to teach and how we're going to teach it, which means we have a point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't say like, oh, yoga's everything, yoga's anything, do whatever. Like that doesn't actually work. That's not actually a class. That's not an educational experience. And we don't do ourselves or our students service by that. The first statement is that you are going to have a point of view. Mm -hmm. Like you are, as a teacher and as a person, you're going to have a belief system. You're going to have a worldview. And that is rooted in your experience from a traditional perspective that's rooted in some scars that may go back past lives. Who, who knows? But the point is, is that we have a belief system and we are drawing on the teachings of yoga and we are interpreting them through the lens of our intrinsic bias, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's normal. I think that that's natural. I think that that's healthy. I think that it's good that yoga teachers have a certain belief in how they teach triangle posts, well, how they it, it teach warrior you, one, how I they teach it, warrior two. It can help you hone your focus, totally. right? If you decide, if you're conscious of having a point of view and you decide what it is, then you can more, I, I would believe you could more clearly convey that point of view. Totally. Well, you have to have beliefs in order to teach, teach anything. If you have no point of view and no beliefs, you're going to stand or sit, preferably just sit, mute 
for 60 to 90 minutes forever and for always. But even that would be an an awesomely radical point of view, (laughs) right? Or you're just going to be repeating a script, which is not... You'd be par- yeah, you're going to be parroting. Not unheard of. You're going to be parroting someone else's point of view, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which isn't really adult behavior. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's just not. Like that's not a well seasoned or a matured thing. So I want to make it clear: when I teach yoga, it's not all about me. It's about yoga, but it's coming through me, and I'm the one that is selecting the content that is based on what I believe to be the most effective and compelling content for this group of practitioners. So that first point is, you're going to establish a point of view that's valuable. But then the second one is, that doesn't mean that we need to minimize other people's point of view, Mm -hmm. right? And I keep going back, I keep referencing it, I bring it up anytime I talk about this. You might have been on the job, but I remember years and years ago, Yoga Journal doing an article, I think it was called A Band of Warriors. And it looked at at how different, I'm not going to say lineages, but different modern schools of yoga mm-hmm. taught Warrior One. Yeah, I was on it, that shoot, actually. Right? Mm-hmm. And I remember there was Anyasara. There was Anyasara, Kripalu, Vini Yoga, and then maybe Ayengar. Yes, it yeah. was. And then maybe a traditional Ashtanga, like primary. It might have, there might have been an Ashtanga. But it's like, of course, in Anyasara, the palms were face of, faced forward. The, the the bottom tip of the scapula were strongly engaged. Yeah. The chest, heart, and lungs were opened. Vaulted. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Vinayoga had a shorter stride with a more squared pelvis. Yeah. Iyengar had this huge, big, long stride with yeah. all these like perfect right angles, right? And the point I'm making is those were four or, four or five. I don't remember how many it was, but those were all specific point of views. But those point of views did not negate the other people's point of views, Mm -hmm. right? So this is really hard. This takes a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. And this takes a lot of belief that things don't have to be just one way, right? Now, I'm all for boundaries and I'm all for parameters. Like I think as a yoga teacher, you should be teaching things, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that being said, I know Mm -hmm. that I have a preferred way of teaching Warrior One Actually, I teach Warrior 1.5, but Mm -hmm. that's a different thing. (laughs) I know I have a point of view on Warrior 1. I know that my point of view on the mechanics of Warrior 1 are sound. They are legit. They are reasonable. But I also know that the longer I've taught, the longer I've practiced, the more educated I am, the more I know the body, the more I know there are different permutations of that pose that depend on the outcomes you are looking for, mm-hmm. right? So it's like it's like cooking a potato. There's more than one way to cook a potato depending on the outcome you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So that's really what it comes down to is does the teacher have clarity with regards to the outcomes they're looking for? Why are they teaching the pose this way? And if you know why you're teaching this pose this way and it has sound mechanics – then we have to acknowledge that a shorter, broader stride is valuable for certain outcomes. A longer, more narrow stride is valuable for other outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I'm just thinking like, I think the thing that's so interesting about this is it also speaks to the fact that 
different forms of yoga, different approaches to poses can suit you at different stages in your life. Totally. We were talking about this yesterday. Yoga is not a prescriptive practice. Yes. You don't write a prescription for everyone. It's not one size fits all. So in order to really embrace that, you have to accept that there are different approaches yes. that suit different people at different times. And yes. like you said, they have to be informed. There has to be a reason for the approach. Right. It can't just be like, well, I felt flowy today, so I right. lifted my heel. Right. Right. But I don't know if you had a chance to listen to the Judith Lasseter podcast yet, but she said something at the I end. I listened to the interview when you were doing it. So I've listened oh, right. to but 50% you, of it because yeah, exactly. I was in the room when well, you were, well, yeah, so, but I've not heard Judith. Well, I'm going to bring something up that she said, okay. the, the, the brilliant side of what she said, which is that we think about empathy and she defines empathy as understanding independent of agreement, mm. right? So you can think about that in this situation. You can understand why a different discipline or a different teacher might uh, approach a pose differently without necessarily even agreeing with that approach. Totally. Totally. And like you said, that's hard to do. Let's, it's very let's hard talk to do. about why it's hard to do, because I think that that is such an important phase in people's growth as a human and as a yoga student and as a yoga teacher? Well, I think it's that we feel strongly about things. We feel strongly about- I think it's about... that we feel threatened mm, sometimes yeah, when yeah. someone has- If we yeah. feel strongly about something and someone presents something else and we react, we're triggered by it or we have a strong reaction to it, I think it's because we feel like, well, if our way is right- that's threatening my way. Yeah. So that way must not be right. Yes. I think there's that. That's probably the biggest psychological factor because the power of negativity is really powerful. Mm -hmm. So the idea that your worldview or the way that you're doing something that you feel strongly about is going to be minimized or undercut, people are going to double down. Scary. Yeah, it's totally scary. It's threatening. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and I just sort of want to get in, for some reason, I want to get into another scenario, right? And and keep playing this out because we were sort of talking about asana. One thing is, I think another reason, and then the other thing I want to tag on to this, is another reason we tend to default in this situation to us just fighting for our own point of view while minimizing others, is that I think that we often want a single concrete easy to identify answer 100% to phenomenally complex unanswerable questions. We want simplicity. We want things to be boiled down to yes no black white because ultimately that's easier. Mm -hmm. Like ultimately that's easier, right? So people will literally ask me from time to time like is it right or wrong to yeah. play music when you're teaching yoga? Yeah. It's like there's no answer to that. Yeah. There's no answer to that. I have my reasons why I don't listen to music when I practice yoga and when I teach yoga, but other people have equally valid reasons to listen to music when they practice and teach, right? And it's going to come down to what are you trying to cultivate and why, mm -hmm. right? I think, yeah, I think you hit on something so important. And I think like one of the reasons that teacher training is such 
a wonderful experience is because you do get a lot of answers because you're just with one teacher for a focused amount of time. Well, most teacher trainings are not just with one teacher for a focused amount of time, but they should be. Okay. But go ahead. Anyway, you do get what feels like a lot of concrete answers. And and in, and indeed, like you do want to leave a teacher training having some concrete Especially you know, in a foundational program. Right. Like this is something that I've pocket. Yeah, this is something I've really learned over time. And I think it's a place in years ago in two hundred hour trainings that I was making mistakes on was I wasn't willing to boil down simple answers mm. and and just give like do A, B, C, D all the time. Mm-hmm. Because I always see situations where, well, maybe A, B, C, D don't apply. Mm -hmm. But when you're newer to being a teacher, you don't want a multiplicity of answers, right? Not yet. Mm -hmm. Like you need a pathway. Mm -hmm. You need to learn all the rules. You need a a strong framework. And then over time, you start to see the gray areas Mm -hmm. and the different points of view and why. So it it, it takes time. It takes depth. It takes a higher level of education to process this. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does. So let's talk about another point that you bring up, which is continuing to grow and revise. Yeah, this is huge. I might be sticking my foot in my mouth here in a moment, but I'm going to start by saying this, which is some of the teachings of yoga are remarkably old, right? They're remarkably old. The philosophical and existential teachings of yoga are super old. The overt spiritual and cosmological teachings of yoga are super old and they're fascinating. They're interesting. And in so many ways, they stand the test of time. Right. They really do. The like, heart of the, the practice, heart I think. of this practice yeah. is old and it stands up. And in a modern setting, we are learning by going backwards. In a modern setting, we're learning from ancient wisdom. Absolutely. Right? And from the insight and experience of ancestors. At the same time, there are a lot of teachings of yoga that aren't really that old and aren't necessarily that accurate. And those are mainly the asana and the technique things, Mm -hmm. right? It's like the majority of what we do in a modern flow class is not it's not super old. Like the concept of asana, the practice of asana, the concept of pranayama and meditation and self-inquiry, like those buckets, those are ancient buckets. But in terms of like the deliverables that we do in any given class, you know, you know, parivritta arda chandrasana is not old, right? Yeah. And so to me, the mechanic, especially the mechanical, the technical, And the sequential order of postures is something that we're still writing the book on. We're still experimenting with. And as yoga teachers, we have to be willing to know that on day one, we don't know everything. Day one of teaching, we don't know everything. 
on day 20, on day 20 year, on day 40 year. We don't know everything. You know, there is so much that is unknown about the body. There is so much that is unknown about the psyche. There's so much that is unknown about physiology that as yoga teachers, we can't back ourselves into a corner and say like, oh, I'm teaching this pose this way because this is how it's been taught by my teacher and my teacher's teacher and my teacher's teacher and my teacher's teacher. Like for me, I don't buy that belief system at all. Mm -hmm. I buy the spirit and the discipline of the teachers, teacher, teacher, teachers. But I'll tell you what, my teachers always inspired in me the independence and the skill set to test and to experiment and to explore, not to just keep writing the same old book. Iyengar has this quote, I don't teach triangle pose today like I taught triangle pose 10 years ago because I've learned things. Mm -hmm. I pray in another 10 years, I'm teaching triangle pose differently because I hope I learn things, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is the point. This is this idea of growth and revision. There's a, we've written some examples on the blog about it, right? One of the examples, two of the examples are, I used to teach twists really differently than I teach twists now. I used to teach the pelvis to stay fixed. Now I want the pelvis to be mobile. I used to teach in most backbends not to engage the glutes. Now I think in most backbends, that's a preposterous teaching. I teach to engage the glutes. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit more technical in how I do it. Detailed, yeah. But, but the mm -hmm. point is, is like, I teach how the shoulders work in arm overhead poses differently today than I did five years ago. Because guess what? I know more about how the shoulders work, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we also now, too, I think about this is we now have in the modern era, we have a lot of yoga practitioners that have been doing an asana practice for 40, 30, 20 years. Have we not learned anything? Have we not learned from all of the lumbar and sacral issues that we need to approach twisting and side bending differently? Have we not learned from all of the hamstring injuries that we need to approach strengthening the hamstrings and glutes differently? Have we not learned from all of the shoulder and wrist injuries in vinyasa yoga that one less chaturanga might actually be valuable and one more locust pose might improve? You know, so this is the point. It's like, I, I just don't understand this idea that we have this fixed routine and fixed set of teachings and because it's old, it's infallible. Yeah. Like this is an alive tradition and the teachings actually teach us that this is an alive tradition, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'll say one more thing. I think about this all the time. I think about it in different contexts. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and who brought Zen Buddhism to the United States. And he has this, he has this quote in one of his books called Not Always So, where he says, teaching Zen is not like training dogs. And I really believe that when it comes to yoga, when we're training yoga teachers, I don't think we're trying to carve out carbon copies. I think that we're trying to produce an incredible amount of skill and empowerment and inspiration so that we as a community can continue to grow and revise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All disciplines do it, you know, yeah, like um, every 
educational field. Think about medicine. Psychology. Think about psychology. Oh my gosh. It's like every five years, there's a whole a whole new, don't right? do that to your kids. Don't right? do this. Yeah. And does that mean we have to be a prisoner <clears throat> of the moment? No. 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 We shouldn't be a prisoner of the moment. And you know, to be to be intellectually fair and honest, that's the risk that we run. Mm-hmm. The risk that we run is being a prisoner of the moment and not sort of heeding that old wisdom. So I want to figure out, I want to keep working with, where is the actual old wisdom that we should stick to? And then where is the old wisdom that maybe we need to grow on? Mm-hmm. And an example I give all the time, right, is like, I have amazing parents. I had amazing grandmothers did everything that my parents said or my grandmother said about everyone or all situations like have i not revised some of my understanding about life you know Mm -hmm. enough said (laughs) enough said (laughs) you know and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we don't love and revere them but it means that I hope that in our daughter's lifetime, when she grows up, she knows more about certain things than we knew when oh, we were she teaching will. her. Oh, she will. For sure. <laughs> she already does. She's exactly. But you know, my point is, is like, yes. I don't see that as an undercut. I see that as if I love someone and want them to grow, I want them to stand on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be under my feet. But again, that's a point of view. And, and not everyone's going to share this point of view. This is my point of view as a as a human and as a teacher. Yeah, and you and I share the same point of view. Yeah. You and I share that, which is that no one person has an answer to everything that's going to be correct forever and ever. Amen. And I want to say one thing that this brought up for me, which is that, you know, you talk about how do we kind of find the middle path between like, throwing out the tradition and evolving. And I I think one way to do that is to remember that humans simply evolve. And so, you know, you have to teach to what's happening in the room. Yes. Like, so 10 years ago, we weren't on our phones 150 times a day. Do you know, I heard a statistic the other day that we check our phones an average of 150 times a day. I, I wouldn't doubt it. 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. How does that physically change the body? How does it change the breath? How does it change? How is it changing our minds? How much more time do we need, you know, sitting in silence now? So as we change, the teaching has to meet people where they are. Uh, I'm on quote day. There's a, I'll paraphrase it, but from... Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Chogyam Trungpa. He writes in there, it's so poignant because he uses this Tibetan scripture, right? Where he said, where the Tibetan scripture goes, knowledge must be burned, hammered, and beaten for the dignified color of gold to appear, right? Yeah. And then he goes on and say, says that the Buddhist teachings are not ancient wisdom. They're not antiques. They're not an antique or a folk tale that is passed on from grandchildren to parent to children, that they're living wisdom and that the teachings must be always kept up to date and relevant to the people that are accessing them, you know? And then he goes on, I mean, the the sort of whole book and the whole chapter is about that, but I really believe this to be the case. And the truth is teachings that are accurate and sound 
will stand up to test. Right. They'll stand up to scrutiny. That's the point. That's the point in saying that knowledge must be burned and hammered and beaten. Because if something is burned, hammered and beaten and it doesn't stand up, it, then it wasn't true knowledge. Right. In which case, it's time to grow and revise. Right. It's time to get rid of that thing. Right. If just cranking the top hip open as far as it goes in triangle pose under scrutiny does not stand up, then we need to not stay held to that teaching. It was on a false assumption, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of biomechanically false assumptions that over the years we've started to pick up should be changed, mm-hmm. should be revised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looked at critically, thought about. Totally. Experimented with in your own practice. That's how we discussed. actually, and the thing is, is that doesn't undermine this practice. It strengthens it. Mm. You know, we're keeping it live. We're keeping it relevant. We're keeping it up to date. That's the only way that teachings can survive. Mm -hmm. They have to be relevant. They have to hold up under scrutiny to the current scenario. Otherwise, they go the way of the dodo. They're gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're gone. Yeah. We have to do this. This is the way we actually honor the tradition. This is the way that we keep it alive. This is the way we continue to transfer the ancient wisdom in a modern context. Otherwise, it's it's going to be the Luddites. It's gone. You have to adapt teachings to a present reality. Right. Yeah. And the teachings have to be vetted. We have to we have to do them service. Cool. Thanks, Jason. One more thing before we go. We've spent a ton of time over the various podcasts talking about all sorts of stuff. Asana, all these things. And to me, like, I love asana. I love technique. I love all the anatomy. I love sequencing. I love teaching methodology. But this is why I do this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, these conversations, I think, are the most important conversations. Because these conversations get at the core of who we are, why we're doing this, and ultimately, hopefully, who we are as teachers and how we inspire future generations of educators. Yeah. That's it. I hear you. I believe you. I know this about you. I want to just make a couple announcements before we go, which I probably should have done at the top of the show. But first is sort of a public service announcement, which is that, of course, our thoughts and our hearts are with all of the different regions right now that are suffering from natural disasters. And Jason and I have spent some time in Cuba doing yeah. yoga years yeah. ago, and we have a really strong connection to that area. I have a Cuban friend who is raising funds right now specifically to rebuild on parts of the island of Cuba that are absolutely devastated. Yeah. So I'm going to put that information in our newsletter. If you would like to donate, I'm sure it would be much appreciated. And you can jump on our newsletter by going to our website, jasonyoga.com, and just subscribing to our newsletter. And I'll continue to put information in there about different ways that you can donate, you know, no matter how small. And the other thing I just wanted to bring up is you are just about to begin more teacher training, right? So let's just talk about you're going to be all over the place. I am. Module one starts in October, mid-October, 15th or 16th, I don't have the date in my head, in London. That's the first module for my European training. And that's sold out. Okay. But 
Module 2 and Module 3, which are in early in 2018 in London, are not sold out. There's still some space there. And you don't have to do them in you order. You don't have to do them in order. You, each module is really designed to stand on its own. They all relate to each other, but, but they also they stand on their own. And then enrollment has just begun for my San Francisco training. Woohoo! Starting in February of... 2018. Come to San Francisco so yeah. we can I can meet you. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do a live podcast. We really let's just commit right now publicly. We're going to do a live podcast during your February module. Done. Live event, guys. Donation based. All right, thanks so much for listening. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 68. I'll put links to all the books that Jason quoted from today. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.